Hello and welcome along to another webinar with us here at Opus Partners. Thank you so much for being with us here tonight. We are going to be talking about debt-to-income ratio restrictions, which are some of the new mortgage rules that have just been announced and currently being consulted on by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And there is so much to dig into tonight. I think we've got one of our best presentations in a long, long time. You say that every month. Yeah, but I'm particularly proud of this one. I do say that every single month. Now, just before we get started and into it, just a little housekeeping. I want to make sure that the audio is working for us tonight. So please let me know what colour is Andrew's shirt on tonight? What, what, uh, someone said green. I will take that because it means that, that you knew what the question was. I see a lot of grey, same as yours, yeah, a bit of grey. It's, it's actually striped, it's striped, but I don't think they can see that on the camera. Um, someone said pasty. I'm not sure if they were talking no, about Andrew's strength. shirt. Or, yeah, you it's stole been a long the, time since I've been on holiday. <laughs> you stole the joke before <laughs> me. Um, someone said hairy. <laughs> How good. But we are here talking tonight about property investment. I'm glad you could hear us. We're going to rip straight into it because we have got a really good presentation on for you guys this evening. Oh, and I'm on the intro this week. You are on the intro this month. Oh, this month, this month. All right. So tonight we're going to be talking about DTIs and how to keep buying property when the DTIs come in. 2024. Great picture of Adrian Orr. Does he pose for these for you? Oh, oh yes, we definitely get permission yeah. for those ones. Now, um, important to mention, tonight is uh, general advice. It's not personalised financial advice. If you want personalised financial advice, you have to see a financial advisor. So we're going to run through some scenarios. You can ask some questions. We'll give you some broad answers, but you need to see a financial advisor if you want to really dig into the details. And we've got an awesome number of uh, people here tonight, which is really, really exciting. And the great thing is, there's a lot of whole, uh, new faces. So I will go over some of the housekeeping. Firstly, why should you listen to these two guys? Um, well, firstly, what, a, what, a, what better thing could you be doing other than hearing about details on a Tuesday night? Um, uh, we have New Zealand's number one business podcast, the Property Academy podcast. If you haven't heard about it, um, go and subscribe. Give us, a, give us five stars. Uh, we've released... Uh, 1,615 podcasts, uh, and we've done actually over 50 webinars now. So we started these in lockdown, uh, and we've been pre we produced them once a week then, back when Ed was less lazy, and now once a month for a long time. We've been doing this for almost four years now, every single month. Holy moly. Um, we own New Zealand Property Investor Magazine, and our book is currently in stores. And I'm not saying that just to boast. Uh, I'm saying this because we kind of know a thing or two about property investment. Ed, uh, on my right, is our economist here at Opus Partners. He's a property investor. I'm the a financial advisor, the managing director of Opus Partners, and, and the property investor as well. So what you're going to get tonight, um, there's been a question about the recording, so just to answer that, uh, just to answer that, the recording will come out tomorrow at some stage, probably later on in the afternoon. That's free of charge. Uh, the webinar, of course, tonight is free, and the Q&A, you really want to stick around to the end because the Q&A is some of the best content that you'll get out of this webinar as well because you'll have other people asking questions that you may have thought about. Now, to get the most out of this webinar, it's not just about hearing from us, it's about interacting with each other. So, under, under the chat, put your chats. Under the Q&As, 
Put any questions you want us to answer at the end. And the reason I, I point that out is because sometimes people put questions in the chat area and we miss them because we're busy waffling on. So anything in the Q&A, we will try and answer at the end. We definitely miss them because we're waffling on. <laughs> um, and in terms of your chat, you just want to make sure that your setting is to everyone. If you put hosts and panellists, it'll just be us. But if you put it to everyone, you can interact with each other because we're trying to build a community here, just not be the Andrew Ed Show. And just for context, already tonight, we've got 725 people live here already. And that tends to go up quite a bit. So tonight, there will be at least a 1,000 people who are here interested in property investment, just like you, who want to learn and are interested in, in having a chat with you. So make sure that you do send those chats to everybody just so that you are able to get the most out of that webinar. Uh, and can we stop with the comments about Ed looking so good after the uh, after the buff? <laughs> after fi that? finally hitting the gym. <laughs> um, and now, what we're going to cover tonight, other than Ed, uh, Ed's new look, Ed's new glow up. Um, <laughs> what are the new DTI rules? Then we're going to cover investors and home buyers. Who's going to be affected most by these new rules? I think one of the big things that people want to know is when they come in, what's going to happen to house prices? Are they still going to go up? Is it going to be the same rate? Are they going to go down? And then we're going to finish it off with the seven strategies to keep investing when these DTIs come in. Now, the debt to income ratio has been all through the paper and it's been proposed for a while. They are going to come in around mid this year. So about June, July uh, this year, we expect them to come in. And they're essentially new mortgage rules. <laughs> so Adrian has come out and written some new rules. Now, what are the three main rules, Andrew? So firstly, do you have enough deposit? So that's been the case forever, right? Have you got enough equity in your property to be able to uh, give a bank comfort that you're not going to skip off to Mexico? Number two is can you afford the mortgage? But number three is the new one, that you don't have too much debt. And we'll dig into what that means later. This is the extra hoop that you've got to jump through. So you've got to meet criteria one and two, but also now criteria number three, which is where people who may have been approved right now might not be approved in the future. For an owner-occupier, so if you own your own house and live in it, your debt-to-income limit is six times your income. And we'll give you a case study in a minute. For an investor, it's seven times your income. And it's really important to point out as well that what puts you in which category is just whether you have rental income. So if you are an owner-occupier and you want to go and buy a holiday home, then you are going to fall under the six times DTI limit because you don't have any rental income. If you have your own home and you've got a rental property and then you want to go and buy a holiday home, you are going to fall under the seven times DTI limit because you are now an investor and you have some rental income there as well. And that's going to lead to some pretty interesting questions, which we'll cover a little later on. You know, first home buyers versus homeowners versus investors, who is really going to be impacted by these new rules? And I've got some excellent data that I cannot wait to show you. But let's start by keeping things things really simple before we start to get really nerdy. So let's just do a quick case study. Can this couple afford to buy their own home? Tim and Jen, they appear to be on holiday at the moment. They've probably spent some money. Are they going to be able to buy their own home? Well, let's say together they earn $50,000 each, which is 100k as household income. 
because they're looking to buy their own home, their maximum DTI is going to be six times their income. And the maths are pretty simple on this. They can borrow up to $600,000 total debt. And we're going to talk about a little bit more about what counts as debt pretty soon. But of course, that doesn't mean that they can only afford a $600,000 property because remember, one of the rules that Andrew talked about before was you also need to have a deposit. Now for your own home, I think a lot of you guys probably already know, you need about a 20% deposit. So what is that on a $600,000 mortgage? It's about 150K. So you add it up, they can borrow $600,000, they need a 20% deposit, which is 150K. The most expensive house they will be able to borrow under these new rules, or be able to purchase under these new rules, is going to be $750,000. Just one quick question while this is relevant. So um, is the income gross income or net income? I'm really asked? glad that you've asked that, Andrew, because that's my next slide. So what counts as income? It is your pre-tax salary. So if on your employment agreement it says $50,000, that is what counts. Uh, even though you're going to pay some tax and it might be $10,000 worth of tax, you might take home forty dollars a year after tax. That doesn't matter for this calculation. It is your pre-tax salary. Uh, there are some other things that count as income, things like rental income. It is all of your rental income. At the moment, if you go to the bank and you apply for a mortgage and you put, a, put your rental property in there and you say, I get $500 a week, the bank doesn't include $500 a week uh, in their applications. But for DTIs, all of your rental income counts. It includes your business earnings. And there are some uh, complicated formulas about how you calculate that within the Reserve Bank's documentation. But business earnings are certainly part of that as well as well as pretty much all of your income. There are a couple of things that the bank might not take all of, things like variable income, if there's a bit of commission or a couple of bonuses in there. Uh, we've got some podcasts that dig into those more nuanced or niche circumstances if you wanna learn a little bit more about that. But what I would say is, uh, the income definition is pretty generous all up. It includes all your rental income, a good amount of your business earnings. Uh, you could even add back depreciation if you're a business owner. Uh, it's a pretty good way uh, to define income. But there are some things that you need to know about how debt is calculated as well. Just before we get into any more detail, it is all your mortgages. So let's say Andrew and I are now investing together and we go and purchase an investment property and we do it as a group, 50-50. Well, even if I go and apply for a mortgage myself for my own home or another investment property, that entire mortgage we have together as a group, that counts uh, when I go and apply for my next mortgage. Uh, it includes your credit card limits. It includes your revolving credit limits. So let's say you've got a revolving credit with your bank. It's 50K and you haven't maxed it out. It's all available there. Still counts as debt. Uh, so do your student loans and any debt that you are legally responsible for. There are a couple of uh, exemptions and carve-outs for business debt. For instance, if you're a farmer and you go and buy a tractor, that doesn't count as debt, but there's a pretty broad definition of what counts as debt within this uh, new framework. There's a couple of questions related to this slide, so I'm just going to ask um, them now. Um, what about income from dividends? 
um, or shares of portfolio? Yep, all of that can count as well. Uh, from memory, I believe that if it's quite variable, then the banks can uh, test it a little bit, so they might scale some of that back. If it is dividends out of like a direct uh, uh, ownership, so for example, uh, Andrew owns a large share of Opus Partners, which is the business putting on this webinar this evening. Uh, the dividends he gets out of that, all of those would count. Now just bear in mind, you've still got to meet the bank's test for one and two, so the deposit and their income uh, uh, criteria. So the third one is, is this new one that gets overlaid and you've got to meet all three. So it could be that uh, the Reserve Bank says, hey, yeah, you can consider dividend income, but your bank says, you know what, we're not going to take that into account, so you can't get the loan because you've uh, you failed on top, uh, uh, number two. That is absolutely true. So let's come to a bit more of a complicated uh, situation, if we can. So we're going to talk about, well, what if Tim and Jen decide they want to go buy an investment property? Because figuring this out for your own home is actually pretty simple all up. Let's dig into some of those numbers. Now let's say that they've owned their own property for a while, they've progressed in their careers, they've got some pay rises, together they now earn 150k. So that's $75,000 each, or some mix of that, their household income is 150k. That is slightly lower than the average in Auckland at the moment. But don't multiply that by seven. Yes, they're, they're looking to buy an investment property, but they will also have some other income. Even if they're looking to buy their first investment property, remember, when they purchase that first property, they will have some rental income as well. So let's say that if they go and buy an investment property, they will then have 30K of rental income. That's about $600 a week all up. That means that actually their household income will be $180,000. That is what we are going to multiply by seven. So the maximum amount they are able to borrow is $1.26 million. Now, if you didn't include that rental income for the new property they want to go and buy, then it would be quite a bit lower. So that's a, a bit of a trick when you're doing this at home. If you're going to go buy an investment property, you're going to have some new rental income. So add that in too. So in this scenario, they are able to borrow $1.26 million. But remember, we've got to minus off their current debt as well. So let's say that they've owned their own home for a while, their mortgage is 350k now, but they've also got a $10,000 credit card limit. Doesn't matter that they haven't spent a dollar on it, it still counts as debt because they could go and spend that money if they wanted to. So we'll take 360k off 1.26 million. They are able to go and purchase an investment property with the maximum value of $900,000. Now, again, if they had a cash deposit, they might be able to buy something slightly more expensive. But if they're borrowing all of the money, like a lot of Kiwi investors do, $900,000 would be the limit in this scenario. And as long as they go buy an investment property that rents for $600 a week, then they've got a good chance of going and getting that mortgage under these new rules. But one thing I do want to say is all of these calculations, especially once you get into an investment property, they're pretty complicated. Uh, so what I've done is I've built you a new calculator. If you go to opuspartners.co.nz slash DTI, it is live now. You are able to put in your own details for your first investment property and it will run the numbers and tell you the maximum amount you would be able to buy under these new DTI rules. So that's just something we wanted to do to make sure that you don't have to worry about, oh, how do I actually calculate these numbers? Uh, you don't have to build your own Excel spreadsheet. Uh, you can just 
go to opuspartners.co.nz slash DTI and run your numbers yourself. Just one thing on that. So the DTIs, it's highly likely right now you'll be able to borrow more on a DTI calculation than the bank will actually give you on their uncommitted monthly income calculation. So um, this is more for knowing in the future what might happen when interest rates come down. Um, and um, I thought that I was pretty smart and could calculate the DTI, uh, or the maximum borrowing I could buy for a rental property today, caused an argument in the uh, podcast where Ed proved me wrong because um, one thing that I hadn't considered, if I could There's buy, lots of things you haven't considered in your life. I'm punching you. Um, like what, if you buy a property worth 900000 and I thought, okay, I might get $700 a week rent for that, that then, that then pushes up the amount that I might be able to borrow and then means I can buy a more valuable property or something like that. Yeah, what it actually is is let's say I can uh, I can afford to borrow $500,000 before I factor in my rental income. Well, then I've, if I can buy a $500,000 property, well, then I get some rental income. So now I can afford a more expensive property. But if I buy a more expensive property, I'm going to get even more rental income, which means I can borrow more, which means I can buy an even more expensive property. And if I buy an even more expensive property, I'm going to get even more rental income. And if I get even more rental income, and you can see it goes on and goes on and goes on. And so there are there is a bit of algebra going on in the background, uh, some, some kind of mathy stuff that tries to figure out, well, what is the maximum amount you can actually purchase? Uh, and yes, this is what I spend my Sundays trying to figure out, uh, which is a hell of a lot of fun. Now, Andrew, I know a lot of people are going to be wondering then, well, how much less can I borrow under these new rules? And I want you to walk us through these. Now, this is a really important thing to remember. The DTI rules, again, that calculator might tell you you can borrow more than you actually can today. So if we look at what people can borrow today, why is my clicking not working? <laughs> let's get let's get our teacher Adrian back. Yeah, so Adrian's so, writing some new rules. So no more than twenty percent of each bank's lending can be above the seven times DTI for a, a, an investor. So the bank's got the ability to have some discretion at twenty percent of its book. Now, if we look at the amount of people borrowing above the limit at the moment from investors and owner occupiers. If we look at that 20% limit, right now, we are way below the limit. We're like, it looks like it's about 7 It's right? about 6 to 7% six at the to moment. 6 to 7%, right? And we can go to 20 Now, again, the bank's not necessarily going to pass you on their criteria. You've got to meet both. So the bank would say, okay, well, yeah, sure, the Reserve Bank will let us borrow to that level, but we're not going to do that. That's outside of our policy based on today's service and test rate. But I think the main thing that we're saying here is that if a DTI came in tomorrow, it would have no impact on what the banks could actually lend to you, right? And the reason is that what's holding back high debt-to-income lending at the moment, what the Reserve Bank considers a bit more risky lending, is interest rates. Interest rates is the thing holding you back right now because the servicing test rate might be 9%. The banks are really putting your mortgage application through the ringer right now. As interest rates start to come down and the banks are a little bit more lenient when they are assessing a mortgage application, that's when DTIs will come on. And I think that's the important thing to remember. This is about future proofing for when interest rates drop and all of a sudden we're in an environment like we were in 2019 where interest rates were so low that investors and owner-occupiers were borrowing more than the DTI limits that are proposed. Well, well, look at that right there. You've got at the peak of the market, investors, 40% of them were borrowing at a high debt-to-income level 
above seven times their income. For uh, owner-occupiers, it was about 30%. So in those times where interest rates are really low, that's what these new rules are here to stop. So next on our agenda, we're going to talk about investors and home buyers. Who is this rule going to hurt most? And I think it's really easy to look at this and go, well, owner-occupiers can only, uh, only borrow six times their income. Investors can borrow seven. And I actually had some comments about this on one of my YouTube videos recently. Oh, really? People saying, oh, well, it's a bit hard on the poor owner-occupiers only being able to borrow six times their income. It's those bloody investors. They're the ones who are going to have all of the fun. The gravy train. So let's have a look at some of the data around that. <laughs> at, at today's interest rates, I'd hardly call it a gravy <laughs> yeah. train. Yeah, not a lot of gravy. Maybe KFC gravy. So what we're going to do is do a bit of a poll and say, well, who do you think will be hurt most by the debt-to-income ratios. Do you think it's going to be first home buyers? Do you think it's going to be other home buyers? For instance, if you're buying your second, your third home. Uh, or do you think it is going to be investors? And one of the cool things, if you've never been along to one of these webinars, is we do these polls and quizzes. And I am going to launch that across your screens now. So you guys are going to see it. And it's going to come across your screen. You're going to be able to select which one you think or which group you think will be most impacted by these new rules. And then we're going to show you the data. And one thing you guys can't see is that over 350 people have already answered that poll. And we can see the numbers. It's like a racehorse almost um, saying, you know, what do you guys actually think in real time? And then we're going to get into some of the data. Uh, just while waiting for um, people to, to, to vote on that as well, uh, I was talking to one of our team, Andrew, and they're saying, oh, I thought it was producer David who sits over here and manages Andrew and I answering all the questions, but it's actually you there yeah, typing often, away. Often it's me typing away there. Producer Dave's just here to keep an eye on things, um, make sure we don't go off track. I'll answer a question just while I've got one here. Fiona's asked a really good question. What about existing borrowing? Will the banks demand us to sell uh, to get into the seven times criteria. So um, the answer is a little bit complicated. So it depends. If you trigger a credit assessment, potentially. So what that means is where people might come unstuck or where we think they might come unstuck is if you sell a property and you've got it all with one bank and then the bank reassesses your application for the remaining lending, that might require you to pay down debt. But if at the moment you're um, at eight times, for example, the bank's not going to come and look at your book and say you need to, you need to pay that down. Cool. And in three, two, one, I'm going to end that poll. We've had over 700 people respond, and those results are across your screen right now. So it's pretty evenly split. 35% of you think it's first home buyers. Another 35% of you think it's going to be other home buyers. And a th basically, a third of you, again, think it is going to be investors. So let's dive into the data now, Andrew, and see what it actually is. Did, did I click that off? Did you have to click it back up? I'm just sorting it out for you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, right. So let's talk about first home buyers first. So at the moment, they don't have, well, at the moment there's none, but if we look at historic um, figures of how much they're borrowing above the DTIs that are being proposed, they don't have much 
lending above that DTI threshold. And so what we're highlighting here is, is the amount of high debt-to-income lending that is above the 20% speed limit. So that is the amount of lending, the stuff that's highlighted there. When these new rules come in, that's the amount of demand that would be taken away. That's the number of first-home buyers who may not be able to borrow anymore. And the interesting thing about um, uh, first-home buyers, and we did a podcast on this recently, first-home buyers typically have really good income. They're actually lacking in deposit um, because often they're double income, no kids, or or you know one and a part income and a child. And so the deposit is the challenging part for them rather than the income. Uh, interestingly enough, those people that are moving house and buying a new owner-occupier, so the home movers, they're a greater share of people who borrow a higher amount. And that could be because Again, they might have dropped to one income now because someone's at home with the kids. And they might be buying a more valuable property because they're, buy, they're, they're um, working up their way to their dream home. So a little bit, but again, not really a huge amount. The next one's going to shock you. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the investors are the ones who are going to be impacted the most because by a country mile, they borrow far more as a percentage of their income than the home homeowners and the first home buyers. Yeah, it is fascinating uh, how much investors, especially when interest rates come down, it's not going to hurt you now, but uh, when interest rates start to come down, even if we get back to the level around 2018, 2019, that is where it will start to hurt a little bit more. And so I think the bottom line is the DTIs, yes, they're going to probably impact everyone when it comes to uh, a lower interest rate environment, but their far greater impact is going to be on investors rather than home buyers. And that's even though investors are able to borrow seven times their income, owner occupiers only six times. And so after scaring you all, because a lot of you will be investors here tonight, uh, one thing I want to talk about as well, how many properties can I actually buy? So when these new rules come in, what is like how many properties can I buy over the next 10 years? And what's really interesting is the Reserve Bank has done some modelling for us. So let's say that you currently have one investment property. Well, if the DTIs don't come in, if there were no DTIs, the Reserve Bank expects or estimates that the average investor on the average income might be able to go from one to seven investment properties in 10 years. There are a whole heap of assumptions about this. Uh, I won't bore you for 10 minutes with all of the assumptions, uh, but we can talk about those in question time, or I also have a podcast coming out uh, for you shortly. But the assumptions here is that there's a 7% test rate, uh, which there, might, there definitely isn't right now, but there could be over the next couple of years, and that house prices are going up by about 5% a year. But what's important to just focus on is not just the fact that you might be able to go from one investment property to seven investment properties over 10 years, what's really important is the difference when debt-to-income ratios come in. Because what the Reserve Bank models out, and you can go and look at it in some of their consultation papers, is they expect that if the DTI of seven times comes in, that instead of being able to go from one to seven investment properties, you can now only buy three more investment properties over the next 10 years. Now, in some ways, that's really good. That gives you a sense of, wow, if I currently have one investment property, I might be able to buy three more over the next 10 years if I'm the average investor on the average income. But the key thing to just point out is that you're able to buy three fewer properties 
under these new rules. And so what I'm trying to do here is just give you a sense of, well, how fast can I grow my portfolio now? How fast might I be able to grow my portfolio under these new rules? And that is assuming that you're not using some of our other tactics that we're gonna to talk to you about where you're able to keep borrowing and keep growing your portfolio even as these new rules come in. But I know some of you here tonight will not just have one investment property, you might be like Andrew and have a few more. So let's look at the rules if you currently have a few more properties. Let's say you currently have four investment properties. So if the DTIs don't come in, and if you're just having to pass the bank servicing criteria, you might be able to go from four to nine investment properties over the next 10 years. That means buying an investment property every two years. And again, there's some assumptions behind here. I'm happy to go through them in the question time if you guys are interested. Otherwise, I won't bore you right now. Um, same assumptions though, 7% test rate and house prices going up by about 5% a year. Now, if the DTIs come in, you're now going from four to six investment properties over the next 10 years. So instead of buying one every two years, you're now buying a new investment property every five years. And actually the difference is the same, able to buy three fewer properties under the new rules compared to the old rules. And that kind of sets us up really nicely, which we'll talk about shortly, which is, well, bugger that. I don't want to be, be uh, investing under the new rules. How do I still borrow under the old rules? And we'll go through that very shortly in what we call the servicing seven. But just before we get into that, Andrew, I've been getting a lot of questions from investors saying, well, hang on, what's going to happen to house prices if people aren't able to borrow as much money? Yeah, because if there's less competition and people aren't able to borrow as much, then surely that's gonna put a real dampener on the housing market and stop capital growth. And so then why would you invest? And that leads us to another poll. So I wanna get your guys' uh, view on this. So what do you think will happen to house prices once the DTIs come in? Do you think they'll go up by 5% plus? Do you think they'll go up by less than 5%? Do you think they'll stay the same? Or do you think that house prices will go down? I'm gonna put another one of those polls back on your screen because I love hearing what you guys think will happen as well. So jump on there now. We've got 960 people live on the webinar right now. Almost that thousand people here live with us tonight. And I know some of you guys are watching as a couple at home. Uh, once we get about 500 responses, we'll close off uh, polling on the on this specific one and share the results with you all. Really interesting answers this time. They're quite well spread compared to what we normally get. Yeah, usually we see um, we see one answer going a lot higher. But what's different about tonight's webinar is we're putting the polls before we tell you the yeah. answers. So we're going to end that in three. So one, and we've had 660 people uh, respond to that. Here are the results. So uh, about a third of you think it's going to go up by over 5%. Uh, another third of you think that they'll go up by less than 5%, but still go up. 20% of you think they'll stay the same. And about 14% of you, just under 100 people, uh, say that they are going to go down. And the cool thing is, we all have different opinions and it is really uh, quite widespread. And the good thing about that is we get to have a good old discussion. Now, Andrew, walk us through the data though. What do you see happening? So um, again, just to refresh, if DTIs came in today under today's lending environment with today's interest rate and today's servicing test rates, 
There would be no impact whatsoever. People could borrow uh, the same amount of money because we're not even close to that threshold. That's what we call non-binding. The DTIs right now um, wouldn't have an impact on the market. Um, but the average DTI is way lower than you think. Uh, sorry, but one of the things to remember is if we look at DTIs at the moment, how much people are borrowing, then uh, I think it works out to be was it two, less than two times? So the average debt-to-income ratio is less than two times at the moment. It's about 1.65 times. And a big part of that is because there's about a third of homeowners that don't have a mortgage at all. Is that the right number? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. So if you yeah. think about maybe a retired couple who are 65, they don't have a mortgage, but they might still have some income. And therefore, they bring that average down. If you think about renters as well, They've got income, but they often have quite low debt compared to that income, so they pull the average down. Now, we're going to get a little bit more um, detailed in a moment, but how does that compare to those speed limits? So that means that in terms of that, can you just move that thing here so I can see that? <laughs> Sorry. No, I can't do it. No, you can't do it. Okay. So at the moment, we are way below where we need to be. So there is no issue with people borrowing more money. It's just that they might not choose to. Now, if we look at an actual example... Yeah, there's a lot more room to borrow more money at the moment. But what's interesting is if you think about a renter, if you think about a retiree, they're probably not going to go and buy an investment property. Or if you think about renters, they're not in the position to enter the housing market. So let's just talk about the average DTI, and we've, we've got to estimate this, the average DTI of a household that actually has a mortgage. So at the moment, households with a mortgage of estimated $611,000. The uh, mortgage debt per household at the moment is five seventy-five. dollars Average income is 127.4. So approximately of those people who are actively borrowing money, it's about 4.5 times. But what's important is that will be an overestimate because we're using the average income, but we know that people who go out and get a mortgage and borrow money, they, they tend to have higher than average income. So the average income of a mortgage holder will be higher than the average income for New Zealand as a whole. And that's average household income, not, not one person holding a, uh, earning 127K, it's two people often earning 127K. So again, why this is important is because if we're, um, uh, as an average, way below where we need to be. Yes, there are people who are going to be affected, but there are still a lot of people who are well under that number. And so that potentially means that, you know, if there is the odd person who wants to go over that threshold and fall into that 20% uh, safety limit that the bank's got, well, there's, there's some room, for, there's some give there. And look, let's think, let's fast forward. Let's think about this and say, okay, well, what if we were maxed out? What if we were completely maxed out and we were all at seven and six times yeah. the DCI? We've borrowed as much money as Adrian will let us yeah. borrow. We can't push up house prices anymore. What happens then? So then you've got to think about the speed in which household income goes up. So if we look at historic uh, uh, growth on incomes, usually it's pretty consistent. It's uh, from, from 2000, it was 50K a year. It's now 127 as a household. Isn't it amazing when you think, I, back in 2000, average household income was 50k. You look, you think about it now and you think, gosh, that sounds really low. But it only seems low, obviously, because we've seen household incomes go up. Absolutely. Same as property prices, right? So that works out to be an average of about 4%, so 4.1%. So if house prices were restricted to purely your income growth because we were completely tapped out as a nation, 
then you could assume that the maximum capital growth you get is 4.1%. Now, if we put that into context for how quickly a property can go up in value or double in value, historically, the historic uh, uh, speed in which a property doubles in value in New Zealand is 11.6 years. Now, if we were limited to a 4.1% increase per year, that goes up. So it turns to 17.6 years. So it is going to take another six years for your property to double in value if we were completely tapped up and, and you were only going up by 4.1% per year. I think what's really interesting there is, you know, whether it's 4.1% or 5 or 4, you know, it, it's sort of about the exact number. But it kind of just gives you a sense of, okay, well, how quickly might house prices go up if we were restricted to household income growth? And what's interesting is obviously in, in recent years, household incomes have been increasing at a faster rate than 4.1% a year. Uh, and that's because we've seen a lot of inflation and we've seen a really tight uh, labour market. But it gives you a sense of, okay, it might take an extra six years for house prices to double in value. Uh, but if I'm buying an $800,000 property and holding it, whether it takes 12 years or it takes 18 years to make me an extra 800K, um, I'm probably still investing in property all up. Yeah. But one thing that I'm really interested in as well is, okay, so we can look at all of this data about household incomes. What has happened when other countries have brought in debt-to-income ratios? Because we are not the first country in the world to bring them in. In fact, many countries in Europe have already brought in debt-to-income ratios. And I'm going to take you over to Ireland and talk about what happened to Irish house prices when they brought debt-to-income ratios in. This one is going to fascinate you. So Ireland brought in debt-to-income ratios in 2015, I believe it was. And since then, you can see what's happened to Irish house prices. They have gone up by about 67% since DTIs came in. Now, if you guys are watching this, uh, as opposed to listening to the podcast tomorrow, you can see what happened to Irish house prices. Between about 1997 and about 2005, 2007, Irish house prices, I've got to say it, Andrew, they went off like oh, a frog in a sock. Wait, I'm just going to do this because I hit the wrong button. <laughs> they went off like a frog in a sock and uh, they really increased. Then Irish house prices crashed by about 50%. And you can really see that. From 2007 through to about 2012, they really fell. Then as house prices were rebounding, that's when the Irish central bank said we're bringing in debt to income limits. So some of that 67% increase from when they brought DTIs in, some of that's natural bounce back, right? So house prices didn't go up because DTIs came in. What I'd say is DTIs coming in didn't stop house prices going up by 67%. They would have slowed it down a little bit, but house prices still went up even though we had some DTIs in there over uh, in Ireland. Uh, but bear in mind, you know, the some of that bounce back, of course, is because house prices fell so much. So let's look at another country. Now we're going to go to Latvia, which is in Eastern Europe. And what do we see there? Well, similar to Ireland, they had this house price boom back in 2006, 2007. And that's why in 2007, the Latvian uh, Central Bank brought in DTIs. And what happened directly after uh, DTIs came in in Latvia, the market was so hot 
the Reserve Bank or the Central Bank in Latvia brought in DTIs back then, that did cause house prices to fall because they were brought in at the top of the market rather than, than the bottom of the market like they were in Ireland. But since the bottom of the market, what has happened? Latvian house prices have gone up 144%. Now, I haven't chosen to measure it from the bottom of the market to be cute or to try and show you, oh, I'll see, see, try and show you the biggest number possible. It's because we are currently at the bottom of the market in New Zealand. So that's where we should measure it if we're thinking about, well, how fast can house prices go up if DTIs come in? Again, in Latvia, DTIs did not stop house prices going up by 144%. I am not saying that that is the sort of house price growth we will necessarily see in New Zealand. I'm just trying to show you what's happened in other countries. And what do we see? DTIs have not stopped house prices going up. Let me show you one more example, and uh, I'll choose Norway again because the Reserve Bank chose Norway in some of their consultation documents. Now, Norway brought in their DTIs back in 2017. Since then, Norwegian house prices have been pretty stable, but they have gone up by 25% over the last six-ish years. So again, house prices can go up in Norway. They went up by about 4.1%. Uh, 4.4% a year, uh, even though they did have DTIs and in uh, Norway's case, they also had LVR restrictions in. And so my key point here is no matter which way you try and look at it, property prices will still go up. It might take a little bit more time to go up. Uh, for instance, Andrew was showing those numbers that it might take an extra five or six years for house prices to double in value. But whether we look at it from an income growth perspective, whether we look at it from the fact that uh, not all New Zealanders are absolutely at their maximum borrowing right now, there's still some room for them to borrow more. And even if we look at the international experience, we can see that house prices will still go up to some degree. So I don't think it's going to uh, completely <laughs> flatten out. Now, Andrew, you're chuckling a bit, so I'm assuming that you've got an interesting oh, comment no, you might want just, to share. Someone said speak Norwegian, Ed. Uh, did that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> so when we were talking about it was, uh, on the podcast, I was talking about how um, how it's quite hard to read Norwegian, and so I'm on the I'm on Norway's <laughs> central bank's website, and I'm trying to figure out when exactly did they bring DTIs in, and and back then I couldn't quite figure it out. I figured it out since then, but um, I probably won't do that because given that there's a thousand people online, uh, maybe one of them might be Norwegian, and if I try and uh, try and speak Norwegian, it might not go too well for me. Just follow the podcast. Now, I think um, a lot of people are thinking, oh, this sounds a bit hard. We want to keep investing uh, because we want to grow our wealth for the future. And uh, these rules are uh, absolutely coming in. So how, do I, how am I able to work around it? How am I going to be able to borrow it even when the DTIs come in? and when interest rates come down, so it affects me. So we're now we're going to talk about the servicing seven. You love a bit of alliteration, don't I you? I do. So we're going to talk about the servicing seven, which is the seven strategies to keep investing even when DTIs come in. Now, the first one is probably exactly what you expect if you know who Oprah's partners are. Yeah. Now, again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to seem like this is the sales pitch because it's not, but we, we here at Opus help investors invest in new builds. And one of the things that we're pretty excited about is that there's an exemption category in the Reserve Bank's discussion documents which specifically says they're going to exclude new builds 
from this calculation. And what that effectively means is that if you buy a new build property, you're able to borrow under the old rules. So you don't have to think about this whole DTI calculation. So if we go back to those uh, models that the Reserve Bank uh, put out, uh, currently you can borrow X amount with no DTI limits, and in the future the new rules are going to limit the amount of properties that you can buy. You can kind of think about it this way. The blue line is actually not the before, it's just if you're buying new builds, if you're investing in new builds. And the red line or the orange line is if you're wanting to invest in existing properties and if you want to be a renovations investor. Now, again, there's plenty of people that that is the strategy they should do. If you're a builder and you want to um, add value really quickly, don't buy new builds, buy existing properties. But if you just want to have more properties, then new builds might be the right option for you there. Yeah, we estimate that you'll be able to get it potentially up to three more investment properties under new builds. Again, there are some assumptions around that. So listen to the podcast where we spend about 10 to 15 minutes actually going through them. The second option is to use a non-bank lender because these new rules only apply to registered banks. So if you read the highlighted part there, it only is applied to registered banks. That does mean that non-bank lenders, uh, non-deposit takers, finance companies, they are not subject to the same restrictions. So you can borrow the same amount as you can today if you go to a non-bank lender. For anybody new here tonight, a non-bank lender is someone like ResiBank or Avanti Finance, Bluestone, Squirrel Money, Pepper Money, Liberty. There are lots of non-bank lenders out there that you could potentially go and look at. Now, you do need to know that non-bank lenders uh, tend to charge a bit more money, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the thing I do want to point out is if you look over at Australia, about 20% of all loans over there are through non-bank lenders. Over here in New Zealand, it is only 2%. And so what that shows you is that there is the potential for the non-bank lending sector to grow in New Zealand. More Kiwis will probably take out loans through non-bank lenders because they might find that that's the only way they're able to get a mortgage for their own home or for their next investment property as well. But you do need to think about that non-bank lenders charge a little bit more. So even if I just compare ANZ with ResiMac, ResiMac's probably the biggest non-bank lender, the one-year fixed rate at ANZ is 7.39, at ResiMac it's 7.99, 0 0.6% higher on the prime rate at the moment. But there are some other differences. If you go to a main bank like ANZ, ASB, Westpac, TSB, you'll probably get a cash bank. They'll give you a cash incentive to use them. You won't get that at a non-bank lender. And then similarly, you might find that you need to pay an establishment fee if you go through a non-bank lender rather than going to a main bank. So there, are, there can be some additional costs, but sometimes it's better to invest even if it costs more. That 7.99% interest rate, uh, that probably hurts quite a bit. Uh, today, once interest rates start to come down, maybe that difference won't mean quite as much to you. Yeah, I remember when, when interest rates were kind of around that 3%, 3.5% mark, ResiMac was charging almost the same interest rate. Now, again, that's not always the case. So I saw someone comment there that um, they basically are crippled by a non-bank lender because of fees and higher interest rates. That can be true. It depends what you're buying, uh, what you're using them for. So if you have um, a self-employed, you don't have financials, you've got a high LVR, um, and you've got a bad credit history, 
it's going to be really expensive. If you're just using them because you're working outside of the DTIs, it may be that the interest rate is pretty comparable when they come down. Cool, let's come to number three in the servicing seven. Which is buy commercial property. So um, uh, again, we want to cover all different types of property investors. There are a lot of investors that I work with that, with that have residential and um, commercial properties. And there is a, a, a separate carve out, again an exclusion, where this is for residential mortgage lending. It's not applicable if you're buying a commercial property. So you don't have to follow the rules if you're buying commercial property. Now, one of the conversations that Ed and I had today on the podcast when recording was um, how does this work if you go and buy a big commercial building and then you upgrade your owner-occupied property? What happens with that commercial debt? And the short answer is... We don't know yet. Uh, we expect that it probably will count, but it also depends how you structure it. Uh, because it depends whether it counts as business debt or not. I expect that if you're buying a commercial property in your own name, it probably counts as debt because you are legally responsible for it. Yeah, and that's, um, so uh, someone actually asked the question that I saw before, what happens uh, uh, with business lending? Business lending is excluded as well. That's correct. So we mentioned before the example of a farmer. If you go and buy a tractor, uh, the money you've borrowed for that tractor isn't going to count if it's structured as business lending. The next one I want to talk about, the next of the servicing seven, is to buy cheaper properties. And I know some people might be laughing about that, especially if you're an Aucklander like <laughs> me, because you might be thinking, where are the cheap properties at? Uh, and let me tell you, there are currently 18 council areas where the median house price is less than $500,000. That is almost 30% of council areas. And I just want to show you where some of those places are, just to give you a sense of you know, what might be possible. So if we look at the likes of uh, the Waitomo district, which is in, uh, uh, I was about to say Manawatu Wanganui, I'm an idiot, it's in the Waikato, uh, I know because I drive through it all of the time, or Rua Pihu district, uh, $350,000 is the average house price there. Uh, if we look down in Gore in the South Island, it's 360k. Or even Ashburton, which is relatively close to Christchurch, $472,500. Now, I bring this up because if you're an investor who can't afford to purchase uh, $600,000 or spend $600,000 in Christchurch or $800,000 or $700,000 in Auckland or Lower Hutt, you might say, well, I can still afford $400,000 where can I potentially buy? And so obviously if you're buying a cheaper property, you're not taking out as big of a mortgage and therefore you don't need as much income to cover that additional mortgage there. So that might be, again, one option for some people out there as well. Let's come to the next one of the Servicing 7, Andrew, and this is uh, possibly one of my favourites. I'll just pull it up for you. Uh, that's borrowing outside of the guidelines. So again, the banks have got some discretion. Up to 20% of their book can go outside the DTI limits. And again, right now, it wouldn't matter. If they brought them in, we're all under that, or new borrowers are under that. But when interest rates come down and people are able to pass the uh, uncommitted monthly income test and now can borrow more, again, the bank can still approve one out of every five applications on those numbers are over and above that DTI limit. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to. It probably means for the first wee while, banks are going to be really cautious and they might approve none of them or they might approve one in every 10. We don't know how they're going to behave yet. 
But theoretically, and because they still want to lend money to make profits, there will be a time where they may lend one in every five uh, people outside of that DTI limit more money. And you want to make sure that you are the type of person that they want to lend to, which is probably going to be, I mean, if they're going to go above, they might as well go uh, balls to the wall and actually have someone uh, uh, really be able to uh, be outside of it. But also, um, if you've got good credit history with the bank and you've always paid your mortgage, what are you laughing about? Well, uh, uh, the bank, your idea that banks are going to go balls to the wall, well, and they might as well pick someone who's 10 times Well, that's what I would have thought. But yeah. anyway, um, that's why they don't give me a stamp to approve loans. <laughs> This is why you're no longer at the banks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do think that you, you can make yourself a creditworthy individual that's more likely to get that approved outside of those criteria. Cool. Let's come to number six of seven, which is to... I'm going to laugh at yours now. Which is to increase your income. And this is a bit of an obvious one. So as we said before... What tends to happen is that household incomes go up by about 4.1% a year. But you might be able to advance in your career and get uh, increase your income by much more than that, especially if you're a bit on the younger side. Generally, when you're starting out of the workforce, you're able to increase your income uh, relatively quickly. I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, somebody who messaged me, listens to the podcast and often comes to these webinars, they said, Ed, one thing I did to increase my income is I was earning a really good income at work as a professional, $150,000, massive income, really. But what they did was they quit their full-time job, and you might think, that's crazy because they're earning such good income, and they started contracting back to their own company. They were able to increase their income to $250,000, a huge income, and that would mean they are able to borrow significantly more for investment properties. So there are some creative ways you are able to increase your income, not just by progressing uh, through your career, asking for pay rises, maybe switching jobs, maybe you might like to consider becoming a bit of a contractor as well. And we're going to come to the lucky last one, lucky Andrew. Last one. I think this is a really important one. If you can get money from the bank, and it's the right time and you should be investing, then go and do it because I see investors all the time think, you know what, now's not the right time, interest rates are so high, it's going to be punishing for a contribution, so they put things on hold. Or they think, we might have a child in the next 18 months, so they put their decisions to invest on hold. Or they might move house or they might put in a pool. All these things that get in the way of them moving forward and then what happens is that does or doesn't happen and then the bank changes their criteria and they can no longer invest. Invest. So if, you, if you're motivated to invest in property and the bank's going to give you an approval, go and use it. So this is the servicing seven, investing in new builds, using non-bank lenders, buying commercial properties, buying cheaper properties, borrowing outside the guidelines, increasing your income and get the money when you can. And the cool thing about this is you could use lots of different strategies and still use some of these servicing seven. Even if you're a renovator, you can still buy a cheap property, buy outside the guidelines, work to increase your income by increasing your rents and use a non-bank lender while getting the money you can. So there are lots of ways that you're able to keep investing even when the DTIs come in. Now we're going to open it up for Q&A in a moment, but even after recording 1,600 podcasts, doing 50 webinars, even after people subscribe to the New Zealand Property Investor magazine and read our book, they still ask me, Ed, what does OPAS do? And because there are so many new people here tonight, I do want to just take two minutes to let you know what Andrew and I do and how we help property investors, because some of you might like to come and see us. 
so the first thing we do is we create a property investment plan. So this is uh, a real video where Andrew's on Zoom with a client, uh, with an investor, showing them a property investment plan and creating that. He's actually sitting on his hotel room floor because <laughs> he had just arrived in Auckland and there wasn't a desk in that specific hotel room. The links I go to. <laughs> to help investors. And the other thing that we do is we find new builds for investors. And Andrew mentioned this before. We really focus on a new build strategy. And that is right for some people, but it's not right for everyone. I think that's important to acknowledge. And that's uh, Kathy Faulkner, one of our financial advisors, who is sitting there with an investor again, uh, showing them around the street, looking at potential new build properties they might like to invest in. Uh, but what's important to note is we are a property investment company, but you don't have to use us because we are not the only property investment company in the country. So if you Google property investment companies, yep, you're going to find us there, but there's also Propeller, uh, there's also Positive Real Estate, they're another property investment company you might like to check out, uh, and also Property Factory. Uh, but that leads to a really good question. If you are able to go and use lots of different property investment companies, why would I talk to you guys when you seem a bit crazy? Uh, <laughs> great question. The first one is that we have, I would say, the most data to help you make good decisions. Now, you've seen a lot of data tonight. We crunch a lot of it. There's a ton of it on our website that you can use to make a good investment decision. We are the most data-led, I, I can hand on heart say that. We also go out and find properties that you can't actually see on TradeMe. You can't find them on TradeMe because we go and negotiate to get them from developers and we just give them to our investors, promote them to our investors rather than uh, listing them on TradeMe because we're not a real estate agent. Uh, the next thing is we really focus on getting good prices and good deals. So every single property that we show an investor now has a table like this in the property pack. Let's zoom in on it. So you can see our property at the bottom. Uh, it is the cheapest compared to other properties out there on the market. Now, just uh, to, just to the, uh, we're not necessarily saying the cheapest is the best here, though. It could also be that it is the best value because it might be a bigger area for the same price. That's true. But what I'm trying to get across is that we try and prove to you that value. So in this case, it was the cheapest price. You could get a two-bedroom, one-bathroom property with a car park in Christchurch for about $50,000 less than other people are currently advertising on TradeMe. And it's about proving that value to you because we are so data-led. And the other thing is we put all of the support you need in one place. So you can buy your property through the OPAS group. You can also get it managed by our property managers. We can also help you get the mortgage. We can also help you do the accounting and the tax returns and have it all in one spot so it's just a bit easier for you. And so look, if you're interested in this, if you want to take this further, then I want to offer you a portfolio planning session. Now there's no cost for this, and that is the same session that I showed you where Andrew was sitting on his hotel room floor, and there's Ben King, another one of our financial advisors, on the Zoom with, with uh, some investors putting together that property investment plan. So if you want to put that plan together, I just want to give you the opportunity. So I'm going to do one final poll. I'm going to put it across your screen in a moment that says, are you keen for a complimentary portfolio planning session? If you click the top one, we will send you a link where you can just book a time tomorrow. If you click the bottom one, then you won't get a link. We won't call you and we won't harass you 
uh, which is quite nice. So just to give you the opportunity to say either, yep, I'm interested in having a chat with you guys, or actually, nah, it's not for me. Even if you say it's not for me, I won't be too offended. Uh, that's our cross your screen. I will and, and you've got the ability to either say, yes, I'm interested, or no, I'm not, but thanks so much for the webinar. Some interesting questions tonight. I'm, I'm going to read you one. I was about to... I well, about just to... before we get into that, okay, I've sorry, got one sorry, more thing. Sorry. Uh, now, if you want to learn more, because you might be thinking, well... I think I like you guys, but I'm not ready to come and meet you yet. Listen to the podcast. Property Academy podcast comes out every single day. Episode 1615 went live today. Episode 1616 goes out tomorrow. Uh, today's was about co-ownership schemes, I think. Oh, yeah. I think it was about co-ownership schemes. Yes, I think it was. Um, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. We release two new videos every single week on Monday and Wednesday. Tomorrow's uh, on YouTube will be this webinar uh, on what was what was Monday's on, David? It was about uh, was about interest rate negotiations. How much discount can oh, you negotiate? Yeah, that was a good idea. Yeah, yeah. How much discount can you negotiate off your interest rates? And lastly, buy the book, wealthplanbook.com, free shipping all around New Zealand. Uh, you can buy uh, a, a copy of our book for $39. Uh, it is a great read. Um, I, I think it's a great book. Uh, people tell me they like the appendices the most. Really? Yeah, the mortgage appendices are quite good. So anyway, let's wrap it up there and come to questions and answers and find out what you guys are most interested in. So Andrew, what is tickling your fancy? I don't know how to answer this one. Well, so you've had I'm a... I'm going yeah. to read it to you. I was, I was going to say I don't think we, we, we can give an answer to this, but someone said, apparently, so um, we'll take this with a grain of salt, 44% of Wellington's annual water usage is due to unknown and unfixed water leaks. If the land subsided there, what kind of impact could this have on property owners? Okay, so there's, there's a couple of interesting things in there. So uh, I think the comment is right. From the articles I've read as well, there are substantial leaks in Wellington water at the moment, up to 40%. You know, that's what I'm reading and stuff in the Herald, just like you are. So the question really is, okay, if that water is getting out and harming the land, what could potentially happen? Well, if your property becomes damaged, the first thing that uh, you, you will be well aware of is you'll probably get a payout from your insurance company, um, but you'll probably only get paid out for the value of your house you likely won't get paid out on the value of your land. If that happened, what would likely happen is that I would expect that the council would come to the party and compensate property owners. The only issue is that Wellington at the moment uh, has a lot of debt and a lot of problems, so it might be difficult to get money out. No, I think what would happen is EQC would... Um, so in your insurance premium, there's a component which is EQC, and that covers you for earthquakes, floods, all those type of things. That also underpins the land... Uh, insurance. So I think that would probably pick Yeah, but up. the issue you're, you're not picking up is even if you think about in Auckland at the moment, where the Auckland anniversary floods last year, and EQC is not covering the value of the land to the best of my knowledge. Uh, so there's been a lot of discussions about will Auckland Council and the government pay out landowners? Sweet, they'll get, uh, people will get paid out for the house because they've got house insurance. But if you can't build back on the land, that's where people are saying the council or the government needs to pay out. And there's some um, differing views on that. Uh, now, someone's asked the question about border income. Does that count as income? The answer is yes to that. Um, someone also asked, what about Airbnb income? Now, I don't know the answer to that. Airbnb income is income. Uh, the, 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 uh, the banks... 
Depending on how it's set up, the banks may be able to scale some of it back if they view it as variable income. If it's through, if you're running it through a company, it may be counted as business income. This is one of the things that, because the rules are so new, um, we can we can kind of have a, a pretty good sense of where it might land. But each bank may view it slightly differently. Yeah, do you want to explain um, what what the current process is in terms of the consultation paper? Yeah, sure. So what's currently happened is the the broad framework for the debt to income restrictions around what's counted as income and what is counted as debt. That is set in stone. The Reserve Bank have already consulted on it. They've already done the work that they need to do. So student loans, a bank can't now say, no, we don't want to include student loans into in the debt to income calculation. Reserve Bank have already decided that student loans are counted as debt, uh, even though the BNZ said that they didn't want to do it that way. And, and, uh, and in their, their response to the paper said that they'd prefer not to do it that way. Reserve Bank's already decided. What is up for consultation at the moment is the calibration. So is it 20% of uh, owner-occupied lending can be at six times DTI? 20% uh, of investor lending can be at seven times DTI? That's what's up for consultation right now. Now, the consultation closes, I believe, late May, I think. Uh, the Reserve Bank has said they expect to have an announcement about which way they're going to go by June. I expect by late June, early July, these rules will be in. So that's what we expect uh, uh, to happen. What else is, uh, are you picking up? I'm seeing a lot of questions around, you know, what if you're a contractor? Uh, a, lo a lot of things that um, will depend on people's individual circumstance. Um, one thing that I do want to point out is that you still have to meet the bank's criteria. So at the moment, if you're not getting approved because you haven't been self-employed long enough or because the bank won't accept your Airbnb income or because your holiday home's empty and you can't count rental income for that, then you're not going to get approved under this because it's a higher level of a, uh, borrowing possibility. The bank still has to meet their own criteria as well as the Reserve Bank, so you've just got to remember that. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Uh, uh, sorry, I, was, I, I started answering and then I forgot what your question was. Um, <laughs> I want to answer Raj's question, which is, um, what could the new deposit percentage be for new investors? So if you are purchasing an existing property and you want to renovate it, so you want to buy something that's already built, 30% deposit. So the Reserve Bank is currently consulting on uh, changing the LVR restrictions. So instead of needing a 35% deposit, you're now only going to need a 30% deposit. It also has an additional benefit for investors because instead of only being able to borrow 65% against your current investment properties, soon you'll be able to borrow 70%. So there's a bit of a double whammy there for people who already own investment properties. Not only do you need a smaller deposit if you want to go and buy an existing property, but you can also borrow more against their properties you currently own. And we've got some great content, uh, Andrew, in one of his uh, recent private property newsletters, which is a, a weekly newsletter that goes out on, thir on Thursdays, uh, had some numbers around that showing you what it is. It's currently on our website. Uh, but for a new build investor, it's still the same. 20% deposit is what you're going to need. Um, really, uh, but, but just on the new build side of things, if you're an investor who's got multiple properties and you want to invest to buy a new build, you're obviously going to have some uh, relaxing criteria on what you can take out of your existing properties. So again, 
saying you might be able to invest uh, in the future when you couldn't in the past or can't, couldn't. Now, Phoebe's asked a really funny one, um, so I'm going to answer this and tie it in with another one. Phoebe's question is, do you think the income from the sale of beef cattle would be included? Um, uh, and, and I'm going to tie this in with a few other people saying, can I use my income from flipping houses? Now, both of those are probably um, individual, uh, um, uh, there, there are limited times that that's happening and the bank won't verify that or use that as your income, I imagine. Now, if you're a farmer, on the other hand, or if you're a full-time property trader, maybe you'll get that across the line. But if this is just a one-off transaction, be it cattle or houses, I don't think you'll be able to consider that as your income. Yeah, it depends on whether it's ongoing income or whether it's one-off. And then there's you know, a question. But that's, that's exactly the same as if Aunt Margaret dies and leaves me 200k, uh, is my income 200k for the year? No, it is not, is the answer. Uh, there was a question here that I had for you. Oh, um, actually, there was a few questions that have um, asked about people in JV situations, which I'll get you to answer. So um, let's say I'm um, investing, uh, I want to buy a new house for my, myself and my wife, um, but I've got all this lending over here in a partnership. How does that partnership lending affect my ability to borrow money? Well, you, it's all of the debt you are legally responsible for, right? So if Andrew and I are, are doing a bit of a JV, we go and buy a house together, even though we're going 50-50 on this house, we are both responsible for 100% of the debt. So if I then want to go and buy a, a property with my wife or my partner, all of that debt counts when I go and uh, try and buy a new house because I am legally responsible for all of that debt. Now, if Andrew and I have, are in a JV and we go and buy a property and we take out a mortgage and then we want to go do another one, that debt doesn't count twice because together we are uh, legally responsible for all of that debt. So that's how it works. It does make it a bit more difficult if you're investing as a group. We've talked a little bit about this on the podcast, but that is also the reason why we have the 20% speed limit, right? That is also why the banks are saying, uh, the Reserve Bank is saying, we will let up to one in five uh, borrowers go outside of these guidelines. It is in that situation. People who really can afford a mortgage but appear to be outside the DTI limit. Uh, um, a question here from Caroline. Is the DTI ratio based on each mortgage or is it the total mortgages? Um, sadly, it's the total mortgages. So you can't have, <coughs> I'm at six times on this property and so I can go six times on this property. We wish it were that way, but it's not. Um, another question from Marcus White said, um, does age affect borrowing power? If so, what are the limits? So the DTIs will not uh, uh, be affected depending on your age. It doesn't have an age limit on there the bank's criteria will still continue to have limitations there. So if you're five years away from retirement and you're buying for your owner-occupied, there's a good chance the bank will have a five-year term on that. They can't say no to you based on your age, but they can say no based on your inability to pay that loan back between now and when you retire. Tell you a funny story. Actually, if you look overseas, some reserve bank, this is, this is just a bit of a bit of a little wee knowledge, so that you could go away. <laughs> a wee knowledge. A wee knowledge. If it ever if it comes up at the pub quiz, you will now know this. What, what has somebody said? 
Oh, I'm laughing. Oh, good. If, if this ever comes up as a pub quiz, did you know places like the Czech Republic uh, change the DTI based on your age? So once you get to a certain really? age, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but I did the research oh, well, on great, this. Great fact. No, the fact is... <laughs> Hopefully they don't ask you specifically what it was. Well, it might change by then. <laughs> but the fact is, in, in places like the Czech Republic, the older you get, the less you can borrow, and it goes down every single year, uh, which is quite interesting. There is one other one that really um, piqued my interest, which is one by Sean who says, do you think the government, i.e. the national-led government, will tell or ask the Reserve Bank to change these rules? Sean, I don't think that will happen, and I'll tell you, I think that's for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that we have an independent central bank, and it's really important that the, the government of the day and the central bank are independent of one another, and so I don't anticipate that, uh, that Nicola Willis, the finance minister, uh, will call up Adrian Orr and say, no, you need to change these rules these aren't coming in. Uh, I believe they've said, uh, the national government has said that they want to look at the rules and see what the impact would be, for example, on first-home buyers. I don't expect that the, that Nicola Willis will pick up the phone and force Adrian Orr to, to uh, change the rules because of that independence. The other thing that I, I was also thinking about, some people have asked me about, well, wait a second, I thought that the national government already changed the Reserve Bank's mandate. I thought the national government told them only to focus on inflation, not on house prices. That's not exactly what happened. What actually happened was the national government changed the Reserve Bank's mandate so that the Reserve Bank no longer has to think about employment. So the Reserve Bank doesn't have to think about keeping us all employed. They just have to focus on inflation. Uh, what I don't believe has changed, though, is that uh, the Reserve Bank still has to uh, give effect to the government's policy of the day, which the last time I checked still included um, help, trying to help first home buyers uh, uh, get into the market and hold back investors. Uh, so in that case, I don't think we're going to see a change. Uh, uh, we, again, we do have a podcast on that if you want to delve into some more detail. Okay, so I'll just cover another, another banking one again. So David said, so can you take into account your rental income, but also do you deduct things like rates, insurance, um, uh, uh, and credit cards? So the credit cards, your limits absolutely is going to be considered debt, but your rates and your insurance, they're expenses. They're not considered in your DTI calculation. They are already considered in most of banks' servicing calculations. So again, you've got to meet all three criteria, not just the DTIs. You've still got to meet one and two that exist today. Um, number two is the servicing, and the servicing side of things will have a scaled back rent, and it will deduct your rates and insurance. Now again, you have to meet that criteria and then not be any higher than seven times your income. Um, if you fall over on one of those criteria, you're not getting the loan. And um, again, um, there was another a couple of questions around clarifying what I meant before around will a bank force you to sell a property? So the answer is no, unless you fall into default of that loan or um, you breach the criteria of your loan. So sometimes people have multiple properties and they fall under the commercial team uh, where they have to show that they are, um, are meeting certain thresholds of um, income, uh, income to rent. Maybe you might get a bit of pressure if you're in that department, but I, I, usually banks want to encourage people to just get into a better position. So uh, for the most of us, what's going to happen is if you've got a loan at the moment, the bank's not going to 
uh, call that loan in. They're not going to make you sell any property. It might be that the bank takes extra money if it's all with one bank, all your lending's with one bank and you sell a property and you can't meet the new DTI rules because you've retired now. It may be that the bank takes all of the sale proceeds potentially, which is why you probably want to talk to a mortgage broker about split banking because someone asked about that. If you have your properties with multiple banks, you still have to meet the DTI uh, uh, criteria for all the different banks when you're applying for loans. So your BNZ loan still counts against your with, with your Westpac lending that you're about to take out. But again, uh, you, you can have a bit more control of sale proceeds. Yeah, Laura asks a really good question, which is a bit off the beaten track, so I'm going to answer it anyway. Laura says, well, how do you prevent confirmation bias in your data crunching? Which is such a good one. And effectively, what Laura's saying there is, okay, Ed, you tell me that you do all of this number crunching, but what if you just show me data that gets me to buy off you guys or get or gets me to believe whatever you guys want me to believe, which is actually a really... Or even if you just get suckered into believing your own, your own bullshit. It's not bullshit, <laughs> Andrew. I spend my Sundays crunching this data and every other day of the week, it's definitely not that. But what I would say to that, Laura, and that is such a good question, is that we try... Uh, there are certain things in our strategy here at Opus Partners which are kind of locked in. Things like we help people invest in new build properties. We don't really touch existing properties. That sort of thing is baked in, so we just disclose that up front. The other thing we try and do is just make our decisions based on the number crunching. And I'll give you an example of that. Let's, let me just share my screen and uh, hopefully not show you my search history. Um, <laughs> That's a little joke for you, Andrew. But if we go to um, opuspartners.co.nz and I'm going to take you to our um, Christchurch page. Gosh, that's a great question. I love it. Mm. Um, oh, I've, t I've done a typo, Andrew. I've done a typo. I, I don't know why you type everything out like that. Well, it's because I, 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 don't, I spelt property wrong, which is probably not very good given that I type it constantly. Um, so Christchurch is a place that we invest at, uh, we're quite interested in at the moment. And at the moment, Christchurch appears to be quite uh, undervalued, about 9.2%. So we've chosen Christchurch because it's undervalued. We're not going on about Christchurch uh, because Andrew happens to live here. We're telling people to invest there because it's undervalued. And then after that, we go and we say, okay, this is a map of Christchurch showing where property prices have increased the fastest over the last 23 years. And so we've got uh, areas where property prices have increased really fast, just above the city centre and just below the city centre. So where do you think we're telling people to invest? Probably in the parts where house prices have increased the most because it kind of makes sense, well, why are house prices increasing so fast there? Let's go look at those factors that would suggest that house prices are going up fast there and then see whether those factors will continue in the future. Um, so the, the, what I'd probably say is we don't um, make a decision like let's go recommend pro properties in Waltham and then say let's go find the data to back that up. We say, well, where should we invest if everywhere in the country? Let's go look at the data and then we say let's go find properties there. So that's probably the way to do it. Put the data before the decision rather than make the decision and say how do I prove that that's the right decision to my boss or my investor or whatever it happens to be. And I think probably one of the big things that's changed in, in our business 
model in the last five years since he'd come on board is we buy a whole lot of data and we crunch all this number and we give it away for free. And on the podcast, we talk about everything to do with property investment. It doesn't have to be new build. It can be relocatable homes. It can be about... Um, yeah, we sub, did talk about sub, that. Di- yeah, subdividing. It can be about um, buying cross these properties and converting them to fee simple. And we put all that data out there so people can make their own mind up which way they want to go. And if it's with us, awesome. If it's not, it's awesome too. We would get stopped in the street once a week, probably each on average, by someone who is only invest- once a week investing. But yeah, that's your fault. Um, <laughs> investing because of what they listen to that we put out, but not necessarily with us. And I am happy about that. I'm happy that people are investing because of the uh, things they learn. And um, one of the um, things that was linked to that was. Um, and this could actually be what she means as well. So when we're talking about the number of properties that people could potentially buy, how do we know we haven't stacked the deck? Um, that that information wasn't actually modelled out by us. That was modelled out by the Reserve Bank. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you think about the um, the, the graphs I showed you, that's a really good question, actually, uh, and good point, Andrew. Um, we talked about how you could potentially buy more, you could grow your portfolio faster if you invested in new build properties rather than existing properties. Um I didn't put those numbers together. I went to the Reserve Bank's consultation documents and pulled those out. So uh, you'll often see us reference other people's data as well, not just our own modelling, because then that's where you could get a little bit more of... uh, you could get a little bit more uh, confirmation bias. Uh, I saw a really good question that came from Tom. I'll just briefly mention it in case other people are thinking of it the same. He said, look, I'd really like to meet with you guys, but the link didn't work on my phone. So I just want to mention that if you go to our website, and you should go on this website because we've got all of this great stuff under the Learning Centre, by the way. Um, it if you just click on this big orange button, um, book your free session, um, then you will be able to, you know, I'll just show you what happens. You fill out this form, you're able to um, select a time with one of our financial advisors and you're away laughing. So just in case anybody else was thinking the same thing, uh, Tom, that's how you, how you do it, go and do it. You can do that at any time. What else is piquing your interest, Andrew? Um, Otherwise, I'll pick a random one. You pick a random one while I read this cool. one. Uh, I've already answered this one. So, uh, Brad asks, will your equity be taken into account if you have a low debt-to-equity ratio uh, but low income? I think what, what the question you're asking there, Brad, is what if I've got all of this equity but I, don't, but I have a bit of a low income. So in that case, your your debt-to-income ratio will be very high because if you want to go and purchase an investment property, you've just said, I've got a lot of equity, but I don't have a lot of income. So you may be able to fall in one of those uh, outside of the guidelines and one of those people who are able to, uh, one of those people in the 20% where you can still borrow at that high debt-to-income level. Uh, the other challenge you are going to have, though, in that case, uh, of course, is that you do need to think about um, passing the bank's other servicing criteria as well because they are still going to put your mortgage uh, application through the ringer, testing you at potentially 9% interest rates at the moment. What else is uh, uh, coming up for you, Andrew? If you borrow close to 900, if we're working on a 900k purchase price, why not just go and buy two cheaper properties, say $450,000, rather than having to be limited to the one property, isn't it more beneficial to have two sources of income? So the answer might be yes, but it also might be no as well, because um, with two properties, and we've done some podcasts on this, um, I don't know, you might remind me of what the title might be on those, and you can find them in our archives, where, okay, let's say rather than one property in Auckland um, uh, at 900,000 going up at, let's say, 6%, we've got two properties going up in a smaller region, maybe at 5%. 
you've still got two sets of bills on that property. So you've got maybe two sets of accounting uh, bills. You've got two sets of rates. You've got two sets of insurance. And if you have a maintenance issue, particularly in some of those smaller regions, it can be quite punchy. And your rates could be just as much on one of those properties in, in Invercargill as in Auckland because of the economies of scale. So um, the answer is maybe, and it depends, and you really want to dig into what that net yield looks like in the cash flow, but more importantly, the return on investment. Uh, Don's got a really good question. He asks, if you buy a new build and some years later you want to borrow for another property, for example, let's say it's your own home, let's say it's a holiday home, will the bank still treat that as a new build or say it's now an existing property and the debt comes in? Now, we haven't got full confirmation, but I'll tell you what I expect. I expect that they will now count that as debt because you are legally responsible for it. And so um, one thing some of my financial advisors and team uh, have said to me is, oh, Ed, maybe you don't want to tell everybody that. But it's important to note that if you um, do go and borrow all of this money and go above the DTI limit to buy new build properties as an investment, if you then go and want to buy, borrow for a holiday home or to upgrade your own home or do some renovations, that could make it a little bit harder. In today's environment, it won't make it harder because the DTI isn't holding you back. But as interest rates come down, uh, there are some trade-offs that you're going to have to think about. So all of us may need to think about, well, do I want to grow an investment property uh, portfolio? Do I want to grow an investment portfolio? Or do I want the most expensive house that I can potentially buy? These are some of the choices we need to make. And for some people, they'll say, you know what, all I want is my dream home. That's the thing that's going to make me happy. Go and do it because as Andrew often says, life's too short not to, not to be happy. Uh, but if you're thinking, hey, I really need to do something for my financial future and I really need to sort my retirement, then you, make my, you may make the decision to say, hey, look, I'm going to put off buying my dream home for an extra year or two so I can sort myself out for my financial future. And I think um, uh, one of the other things is if you're working with a good broker, they might prioritise your goals and think, okay, well, if um, upgrading your home is really important, it's going to cost another half million dollars. If you've got the equity in your property at the moment to set up a revolving credit to allow you to do that, and, um, and you apply for that today, get that set up, and then you buy your new build investment in 12 months' time, for example, Again, you're going to fall outside of um, that criteria. Um, Rowan's got a good question. I want to answer this because this is such a good question. What if you move banks and need a new oh, credit assessment? Question. So Andrew's been scaring the bejeebus out of you, saying, well, if you're with one bank and you decide to sell a property, maybe they'll force you to pay down debt. But there is an exemption in the DTI rules, same as the LVR rules. If a bank has already approved your mortgage, you can move that, uh, move that mortgage to another bank and you are exempt from the DTI restrictions. Same as you are exempt from the LVR restrictions. And the Reserve Bank does this because they still want competition between banks. It's called loan portability. Uh, so that's a great question, Robin. Uh, sorry, Rowan, because uh, you will still be able to move your mortgage and not worry too much about the DTIs. You will not be locked in with a single bank. Um, another one uh, that's quite interesting to me is if you're planning on having a baby in the next 12 months but also wanting to invest, is it better to do that pre or post child? Now, there was a uh, case study Sunday that we recorded today that will go live on Sunday, um, where uh, uh, one of uh, not one of our customers, but one of the uh, one of the investors that listens to the show talked about spoke about their journey, and their advice was 
Do it now, do it now before you have kids because your priorities change later on and things get put on the back burner and I've seen that lots and lots of times. Now again, if you just can't bear to think about an investment property before having kids, then don't do it. But my advice would be to get it now, done now because life changes after kids and maybe you'll take longer off work than you think. And this is what's quite interesting here is there, there will soon be three tests, right? There's a deposit test, there's a can you afford the mortgage test and there's a debt to income test. And something like a baby doesn't impact debt to income and it doesn't impact deposit but it does impact affordability because what tends to happen is that you are going to see uh, your expenses go up when you have a baby. Oh actually it could impact DTI because you might have a partner that goes on maternity leave as well uh, but if, you, if, if both uh, partners are still working it could still impact you but more on the can you afford the mortgage test. I accidentally deleted one then by accident. Someone asked about working for families or other benefits. Does that count as income? My understanding is it would be. I would expect that yeah. It would be, but uh, I must have. I haven't looked at it too much. Um, uh, one person said, "Do they take into consideration KiwiSaver?" Now, this is a really interesting one. So. Uh, from a debt-to-income perspective, they're not saying, well, you're, you're saving 3% of your income uh, in KiwiSaver, and therefore that income isn't available for the mortgage. From a debt-to-income perspective, KiwiSaver doesn't matter. From a deposit perspective, KiwiSaver can, make, can be obviously part of your deposit. From a UMI or from a can you afford the mortgage perspective, KiwiSaver does come into it because that money is not coming into your account and so uh, the banks won't use that as income uh, when they're assessing your mortgage application. And that's where it does start to, again, get a bit more complicated because there are these three tests and something like KiwiSaver might come up, but it's like, well, which of these three tests does it actually impact? What else is uh, uh, making um, you So interested? I'll answer two and then do you want to choose a final one? So um, Don, nice easy one. Um, what was that about borrowing 80% on new builds and now saying 70% borrowing? So just to clarify, if you're buying an existing property uh, uh, as an investment property, so it's already there today, then that property requires a 30% deposit. Oh, sorry, 35% deposit today. That's going to reduce to 30% deposit. Or if you've got existing rental properties that you could only borrow 65% uh, uh, against at the moment, you'll be able to borrow 70% against those existing rental properties in your portfolio. With new builds, the LVR restrictions don't apply. So generally speaking, you need a 20% deposit. Um, and then Clinton also said, we've got an owner-occupied property and I've got one existing investment property in Auckland. Are we better to sell that existing investment property and see if we can buy two new builds that are cheaper? Um, Clinton, that's where we. That's where the advice that you need is from a, um, a financial advisor or one of our property partners, where you can actually look at what the return on investment on the existing property is versus redeploying that equity into one or two uh, uh, new builds. And then you make your own mind up. That's when it's getting very specific. There's no uh, blanket answer for what you're asking. And the last question, we'll wrap it up so we can uh, uh, all, all go back to Coronation Street or, or watching the latest uh, latest uh, episode that's coming out of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, I'm, that's going to be good. I'm going to answer Fiona's question, which is I don't understand how low interest rates will be bad oh. for investors with respect to DTIs. And um, I've got to tell you, Fiona, low interest rates will not be bad for investors. In fact, for many of us, they will be very, very good, especially if we've got lots of mortgages. What we're simply saying here is that if the DTIs come in today, they won't have any impact because 
there are not that many investors who are actually taking out mortgages at very high debt to income levels. And the reason there aren't that many investors or owner occupiers taking out those big loans compared to their incomes is because the banks won't let them. Now, why won't the banks let them? Because interest rates are so high. So even though you might pay a 7.3% or a 7.2% interest rate today, the bank is testing your mortgage application at a 9% interest rate. And so today, it is interest rates that are holding you back from taking out a big mortgage. As interest rates start to go down, interest rates isn't going to be what's holding you back from getting that mortgage. That's when the DTIs start coming on. So if the DTIs came in tomorrow, it's what we economists call non-binding. They won't have an impact because we're not taking out that much high de debt to income. But when will we start taking out those big mortgages again with respect to our income? When the interest rates go off. So that's what we're saying. When interest rates go down, that's when DTIs will come in. At the moment, they'll be there, but they're not holding us back. Something else is holding us back, and it's interest rates. Thanks so much for being with us here tonight. That's our last question. We're going to go off and have dinner and watch some TV. See you guys later. Thank you so much for being with us. The recording will be in your inbox tomorrow. And on top of that, we will be back again next month for our usual monthly webinar. See you guys later. Thank you so much.